Psalm 123. On page 613. Before we read the psalm, let me ask you a question. It's kind of a a practical question about religion. Uh, Is there there a, a better posture for talking to God? In other words, is there, is there a better way where you get better kind of connectivity with God, the right kind of posture? In other words, is it better to, to lift up your hands and lift up your head and talk to God? Or, or is it better if you're talking to God to sit down and bow our heads like we were just doing and pray? Or if you really want to get connected with God, do you, do you need to get on your knees by your bed or by your couch? You know, is that how you get more bars on the cell phone to, uh, to get in touch with heaven? Or maybe, maybe the, the best way to connect with the Lord is to get on your knees on the ground and, or maybe put your face on the ground or maybe go spread eagle on the ground and prostrate yourself before the Lord. What, is there a best posture for connecting with God? Maybe it's sitting in the lotus position while saying, oh, holding a healing crystal or something. What is the best posture? Or maybe it doesn't matter. Or maybe you say, I've tried it all and I still don't feel connected to God. I don't know how to get God to listen to me. Well, I'd like to argue this morning that there is a posture that you need to assume if you want God to listen to you. In fact, if you don't have this posture, it doesn't seem God's very receptive to listening to people. And the posture is not a physical posture. It's not something we do with our bodies. But it's a posture of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. And and if you don't have this attitude and this posture, you're not in the right relationship for approaching God. And if I had to summarize this posture in a phrase, I would call it humble dependence. Humble dependence. Look with me at Psalm 123. Let me read this psalm. And and it's only four verses. It's really short. And uh, see if you can hear... Humble dependence coming through this psalm. Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid looks to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he shows shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. It's a short psalm. It's only four verses. Uh, And for those of you who are new with us today, maybe you're here for the infant dedications, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're studying through the psalms this summer. We started at Psalm 120, and every Sunday we're just taking a different psalm. So today we're at Psalm 123. And, And here we have in Psalm 123, I feel like 123 is kind of a snapshot. It's a frozen moment where you're kind of getting the inside glimpse of somebody's soul, and it's a person who's in crisis, and they're crying out to God. This is a person who's going through something difficult, someone who needs help, and we'll talk about what that crisis is at the end of the psalm. But in these four short verses, we have this frozen moment in time where somebody is in dire straits. And they're approaching God. And what we see as they approach God is we see this posture. You have to assume humble dependence. Uh, Even though it's a short psalm, just four verses, you can kind of actually break the psalm in half, right? The first two verses, 
display the posture of this person. And then in verses 3 and 4, you have the prayer of the person. So, so you see how they're approaching prayer, their, their attitude. And then in verses 3 and 4, what their prayer is. And so we'll just look at both halves of that. And, and I would say that in both of them, the, the theme that's coming through is something that you might call humble dependence on God. And if you don't have humble dependence, you can't really approach God rightly. So let's look at both halves of that. Let's look at the posture, verses 1 and 2, and then the prayer in verses 3 and 4. So first is the posture. Notice this person is approaching God. And, and the first thing we have to know when you're approaching God is who is God? What is God like? What's the right way to, to come to God and to talk to God? And what we see in verses 1 and 2 is that God is, well, He's in charge. God is the king. God is the boss. He's the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. It starts off this way. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose, what? Throne is in heaven. And so right away we see that God is not sitting on a rocking chair. God's not in a lazy boy. He's on the throne. He's the king. He, he has authority. He rules over all things. One of the things we see in the Bible, if you ever start reading the Bible on your own, from cover to cover, if there's one thing that the Bible tells us about God, it's that he's king. From cover to cover. He's in authority. He made us. And because he made us, he owns us. It's all his. All the rights are his. All the authority is his. He's not voted for. He's not elected. There's no opinion polls to which he answers. He's the king. His truth is truth. He's the one who tells us what right and wrong is. Our lives are his. We have no rights before God. He has absolute authority. He's on a throne reigning over us. And so you've got to have that humility before the king if you're going to approach God. You know, that's why in, uh, I don't know if anyone here grew up in a Jewish home, Jewish background, Jewish family, and, and maybe you heard some of the prayers. Commonly in Jewish prayers, they'll, they'll often begin this way, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, blessed are you, Lord our God, Melech HaOlam, king of the universe. That's who God is. He's the king of the universe. I was, uh, some of you who've been here know, I was in uh, Dubai recently in the United Arab Emirates. And uh, I know I keep mentioning that every Sunday, but uh, it's so many sermon illustrations. <laughs> so anyway, I was in Dubai, and uh, the, the Emirates are, are a, a group of seven Emirates that are, that are bound together as a nation. And each Emirate is an absolute monarchy. So when you're in that, that, that Emirate, when I was in the Emirate of Dubai, you know, the, the sheikh who rules Dubai, when I was there, I was under a king. And so that meant that if he decided he didn't like me, he could have just said, Jeremy leaves the country. You know, he, he makes the rules. He can say what goes and what doesn't go. Uh, we, we went there as tourists one night, and we went to the biggest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa, and we went to the biggest mall in the world that are both there together. And, uh, and so we asked our hosts as we were being let out of the car, we said, is there anything we should just be careful to do or not to do while we're here? And, and they said, they thought about it a second, they said, you know, just one thing don't do. Don't offend the leadership of the country. You know, that's the one thing not to do. So we're there in, in this building, the Burj Khalifa. Uh, Burj just means tower, and Khalifa is the name of the president uh, of the country. And uh, so, so we're there, and Godwin posts a, a picture on Facebook, Pastor Godwin was just up here, and it said, hey, we're here in the Burj Khalifa. And then right as he hit send, 
it auto-corrected to burn Khalifa. So he posted on Facebook, burn Khalifa, the whole, and he, you know, I was tagged in the photo, so I untagged myself, and I was like, <laughs> I got nothing to do with that. They gave us one rule, don't offend the leaders, burn Khalifa. I'm like, no. <sighs> so anyway, how many times have I told that story? Like five times, yeah. It's my biggest audience yet. So anyway, um, yeah, with monarchs and rulers, you don't offend them. You, you do what they say because they're the king. They have absolute, absolute authority over us, the king. Uh, but notice what else God is. Look at verse 2. Here's a different metaphor used to describe God. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of the master. As the eyes of a maid looks to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. So God is not only the king, he's also the master. He, he owns us like a master owns servants or slaves. He, he made us, he owns us, everything is his. And again, that's another foreign concept to us. We, we don't think in terms of servanthood, indentured servanthood, slavery, but but in a sense, God possesses us, and we answer to Him. And, and like a servant might look to their master for, for food and for care and for everything they need, so we look to God. And so, so there's this posture here. There's this attitude of humility and dependence before God. That's, that's how we have to approach God, because that's who God is. And so we come to God in humility. This sounds funny, maybe, to us. We don't typically think of God that way. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to generalize about how people in our culture think about God, but uh, maybe I'll put it this way. One of the common ways I, I feel like people talk about God is that the God is just kind of, he, yeah, we believe in him, but he's sort of out there like, a, I don't know, a grandfather figure. He's there if you need him, you know, getting a pinch, if you need some money, <clears throat> you know. Uh, if you need some encouragement, grandma and grandpa are always there for you. They'll always be for you. And if you really need them, you can go see them. And if not, that's okay too. You know, just do your life. And, and, and grandpa's always there. Oh, good to see you again. You know, and you've got to see grandpa a couple times a year. You've got to go to church. But otherwise, eh, you go on, get on with your life. This is, this is how we often view God as kind of real but detached and not important to real life. Not as the one who owns our very lives, to whom we owe everything as the king and the master. Or sometimes it's even worse. Sometimes we even think that we're God. I mean, we might not put it that bluntly, but, you know, I don't know if you've read this book or heard of this book. It's a little bit dated now, but it's called The Secret. Has anyone heard of that book or read that book? And, I, you know, I, I, talk, I mentioned this a couple of years ago, but then just like two weeks ago, I was having coffee with someone. They're like, what about that book, The Secret? Have you read that so anyway, it's kind of in my mind again. But for those who haven't read The Secret, I'll tell you the secret. So the secret is, according to this book, that there's something in the universe called the law of attraction, which means that, that whatever you send out, you attract back. So if you send out negative attitudes, negative words, negative feelings, if you send out negative energy, I'm not sure what that means, but if you do that, negative things will come back and happen to you. Bad things will happen to you. But if you send out positive thoughts, positive attitudes, positive words, positive energy, whatever that is, that positive things will happen to you. So if you don't like your life, well, you just got to 
positive your way out of it. You know, you create your own reality. You, you control and manipulate reality by, by the kind of energy that you're sending out. Again, I'm not sure what exactly what it means to send out energy, but, but you, 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 can, you create your own circumstances through your own mindset and, and through your attitude of your heart. And so in a sense, you're kind of saying you're God and you control your own circumstances in a way. There's a Christian version of this. Those of you who've been involved in the Christian, I put in quotes, version of this. But, but it's this idea that, that we control our, our uh, circumstances by our faith. That if you have enough faith, that if you claim the promises of God and claim the blessings of God and believe enough and believe the right way, you can, you can create things for yourselves. You can cause things to happen through your own faith in God. Name it, claim it, grab hold of your blessing. And that, that kind of teaching is, is in churches. It's, it's like a plague, especially in Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia as well as here in the United States. But that doesn't see God as the king and as the ruler. God is king. And that means that if I'm going to approach God rightly and if I want to relate to God rightly, I've got to start by getting straight. He's the king. I'm not. He's God. I'm the creation. He's the master. I'm the servant. And so I've got to come to God with, with humility. I've got to come to God. You know how Jesus put it? I've got to come to God like a little baby. We had all these babies in front of us. Remember the story in the Gospels where they tried to bring babies to Jesus and the disciples were like, look, he's got more important things to do than deal with your babies, okay? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Bring the babies in. Bring the kids in. And, and he said, because unless you become like one of these, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And what does it mean to be like a little baby, like a child? It means to be humble and dependent, to have no status, to have no rights, and to be totally dependent upon God. And Jesus said that's how our hearts have to be. That's the attitude that we have to assume. And that's difficult for us to to be humble and dependent before God the King. I mean, we, we sing songs like we do in the worship service today. Come, people of the risen King. Behold our God seated on a throne. Love those songs. But, but what I find, at least in my own life, maybe, maybe you have a different experience. My own life is it's easy for me to sing those songs on Sunday. But when I'm going through crises, my real attitude toward God starts to surface. When things start going bad for me, that, that's when I quickly shift from like, oh God, you're the king, you're the Lord, I follow you. And suddenly my attitude starts becoming more like uh, angry guy at the customer service counter. <laughs> you know, what? I got this from you, God, and it doesn't work. You know, uh, irritated uh, customer at the restaurant. This is disgusting. You know, I ordered this medium rare, and this is what you gave me? Take this back. And you know, and I want free dessert too. You know. And we're just like, God, well, you can't give this to me. You know who I am, you know? Really, God, how could you treat me like this? And, and, and the more intense difficulty becomes and the more inexplicable suffering is, uh, it, the harder it is to surrender myself before his, his sovereign hand. The harder it is to be like Jesus. Do you remember Jesus in his moment of crisis? the night before he went to the cross, hours before his arrest, moments before his arrest. He's praying in the garden, and he, and he prays, Lord, if you can take this from me, take it away. But, what? 
not my will, but yours be done. And so the way to approach God is with humble dependence. You know, it might sound something like this. It might sound like God. It's all yours. My money is yours. My life is yours. My body is yours. I wish my body didn't feel this way, but it's yours. My, my, my marital status is yours. My children are yours. We really do dedicate our children to the Lord. They're His. You know, my, my career is yours. My dreams are yours. And so, Lord, I, I hope they turn out this way. I pray for this. But ultimately, my life is in your hands. And what I want my life to be about is giving you honor and you glory as the king. And so I lay it all before the king because it's yours anyway. And the fact that I think that I'm in control of it is just a delusion. Lord, I surrender before you. That is the posture of humble dependence on God. And it's one that we have to cultivate as Christians because it's so easy to go back to that other mentality. Notice how the humble dependence comes out as well in the request. Look at verses 3 and 4. So it's not only the, the, the humble dependence in the posture, lifting our eyes to the king, lifting our eyes to the master, surrendering our lives before him in humble dependence. But notice that even what the, the psalmist prays about, what his prayer request is, is humble dependence. Look at verse 3. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. It, it started already in verse 2, Tell he shows mercy. So three times in rapid succession, mercy, then verse 3, mercy, verse 3, mercy. He's praying for mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is what people who have no rights ask for. When you're asking for mercy, you're saying, I don't have any claims here. I don't have any rights. I'm just asking for mercy. I'm asking for you to be nice to me even though I don't deserve it and I can't make an argument for why I deserve that from you. You know, my kids do this all the time when we're in the grocery store and we're in the checkout aisle and then you get to the checkout aisle and there's the row of candy. They're like, can I have a candy bar? You know, or can I have some gum? And they're just asking for me to be nice and merciful. They, they, I don't owe that to them. There's not some, some quid pro quo that's going on that, that I, you know, it's now my time to do my part and buy them gum. But they ask. And, you know, sometimes we say yes, sometimes we say no for various reasons that we may have as parents, uh, which may be good or bad. But, but still, ultimately, they're asking for a favor. They're asking for a kindness. It's, it's what the criminal does when he's been convicted and he's now at his sentencing and he's reading a plea for clemency to the judge. He's basically just saying to the judge, I know I'm convicted. Have mercy on me. You know, don't, don't come down as hard as you could come down. Have mercy. It's what you pray for when you realize you don't have rights and you don't have claims. Again, maybe it would help to, to contrast this with, with some other things. Uh, you know, to, to understand mercy, sometimes it's easy to think about the opposite of mercy. So, so, for instance, asking for mercy is not the same thing as karma. Some of you are familiar with the concept of karma. It's kind of like the secret. You do good things and good things happen to you. You do bad things, bad things happen to you. That's not how mercy works. Trust me, you don't want karma. <laughs> you know? No, yeah, I do. You don't want karma. <laughs> bad things are going to happen to you, okay? I'm just telling you. You and I are all sinners. Karma is bad for sinners. 
We need mercy, not karma. I need to get what I don't deserve, what I haven't earned. I need God's kindness and grace. Uh, Mercy is different from a paycheck. Paycheck is like, I did the work, I put in the time, this job stinks, but at least I get a paycheck. Hey, where's my paycheck? And if you don't give me a paycheck, woo, now I got you because you owe me money, right? But that's not how mercy is. Mercy's not a paycheck. We don't come to God and say, look, God, I was on that committee in church, and, uh, and I sang in the choir, and I tithe, and um, I have a very fuel-efficient car. I'm saving the planet. And, uh, you know, I served on the PTO. And, and therefore, that's pretty good. So these bad things that are happening, I don't deserve that. You owe me something for what I've done for you. That's not mercy. Mercy says, God doesn't owe me anything. He's God. He's the king. I owe him all those things. He owes me nothing because he is God and I'm not. Or just one more example, mercy is different from rights. Mercy is different from rights. Of course, we love our rights. I love our rights. I love the rights that we have in this country and the freedoms. I love the Bill of Rights. I think sometimes we think the Bill of Rights is a lot longer than it actually is. You know, if I come to a four-way stop and I'm irritated, I have the right to go first. Uh, We have all kinds of rights in our minds. But mercy is not rights. Mercy is not saying, God, you owe me this because I have a fundamental claim upon it. It's simply saying, God, have mercy. Show me favor. I don't deserve it, but please show it to me. It's a, a humble attitude, recognizing that we're humbly dependent upon God for everything And the great thing about our God is he's not only king, he is a merciful king. He loves us. And God loves to have mercy on people who love him and his mercy. But if we're claiming things, then he's not going to get any glory for it. We're going to get all the glory because look how great I am. But, but, But when we're saying, no, God, it's you who's merciful, he gets the glory and he loves to show his mercy to those who are humbly dependent. That's what God specializes in. Says in Isaiah, since ancient times, no eye has seen, no ear has heard of a God like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. There's no God who acts for those who wait for him for mercy. You can contrast that mercy and that humble dependence with, uh, if you just to end the psalm here, with verse 4. Look at the. Uh, Look at the source of the crisis. So we said this guy's in crisis, right? Well, the crisis is that there's other people who aren't humbly dependent upon God who are mocking him and ridiculing him and ridiculing his faith and dependence. Look at verse 3. For we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. So, so the reason the psalmist is in crisis is he's trying to follow God. He's trying to put God first and be humbly dependent upon God, and yet He struggles because there's people who are ridiculing him and mocking him and saying, what? And they're ridiculing his morality and they're ridiculing his beliefs. And these people are what? What's their characteristic? They're arrogant and proud. And that's the opposite, is the person who's got all the answers. They're all set. I don't need God. God is for weaklings who need crutches. God is for people who haven't gone to college and studied science and realized that science disproved God millions of years ago. Uh, you know, or whatever, 
or I've read Kant or Nietzsche, and therefore there can't be a God because they've disproved it philosophically. You know, I'm, I'm too smart for God. I'm, I'm, too, I'm fine. I've got plenty of money. I, I've got plenty of education. I'm self-confident. And people who need that stuff are weak. That's that, that proud, self-righteous, self-confident attitude that, that the psalmist says, this is the problem. This is the opposite of humble dependence. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important that we get humble dependence? Why is it so important that we understand that God is the king and that we have to come to him looking for mercy and grace? This is why. Because if you don't come to God that way, you will never be saved. Period. If you don't come to God humbly dependent upon his grace, if you come with any sense of self-deserving you will never find eternal life. You're lost because you're like me. You're a sinful person, and I don't have what it takes to please God. I need His mercy. Let me show you how Jesus put it. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Here's another passage about the right posture. It's in Luke chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1038. Luke 18, page 1038. Verse 9. This is Jesus' teaching. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, the independent arrogant as opposed to the humble dependent, Those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So Jesus realizes there are some people in his audience in front of him who thought they were fine. I'm fine. I've got it all together. I got everything I need. I don't need God's mercy and grace. I'm good enough. Whatever the standard, the minimum system requirements for, you know, getting into heaven, I've more than met those. I'm fine. I'm confident in my own goodness, my own spirituality, my own religion, my own decency. So Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. Here's two people approaching God. One is a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. Just so we're all on the same page, historically, the Pharisees were the super awesome religious people. The tax collectors were the dirty, rotten scoundrels. Super awesome religious guy, dirty, rotten scoundrel. And they're approaching God. Look how they each approach God. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like (coughs) the tax collector here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I mean, he's super awesome. He, He fasts. He tithes of everything. This guy gives He's not a robber. He's not an evildoer. He hasn't committed adultery. He's not an axe murderer. I mean, how bad can I be? I've never murdered anyone, the person says. And, and so he thinks he's fine. And like, like he always does, he, he boasts in his own righteousness because it's always, easier, it's always easy to find people who have done things that you've never done. We can all do that. So he says, I'm fine. I'm all set. The super awesome religious guy. And then there's the tax collector. He stood at a distance. He doesn't even feel worthy to come close. Maybe you're in church today and you're like, I can't even believe I'm in the room. I'm surprised this place didn't fall in on me. 
That's how he feels. Ah, I shouldn't even be here. He's, he's at a distance. He's at the back of the temple praying. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast. There's a physical posture. Not that there's one right physical posture, but that's a physical posture that's showing where his heart is. And, and he's so distraught, he's, he's just beating his breast. Have you ever been that upset where you're just like, ugh, hitting yourself or, or you know, shaking or rocking or rubbing your hands? He's, he's so upset, but he's upset at himself. And what is his prayer? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't have it. Whatever it takes, I definitely don't have what it takes because I'm a sinful person. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the, the, tax, the dirty, rotten scoundrel, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. That's the person whom God forgave, and that's the person who God says, I will accept. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The ironic thing is that we think to approach God, we've got to buff up the CV and the resume. If you're going to get serious about God and spirituality, you've got to spiff that thing up. Huh? What do you think, God? Not so bad? Pretty good. Better than him, at least, for sure. Uh, but the ironic thing is that if you want to draw close to God, the, the kind of people that God is welcoming to himself are the people who recognize that they're sinners and that they need his mercy and grace. Isn't that amazing? It's totally opposite of the way we think. God wants us to be honest and to say, like this, this tax collector, I'm a sinful man in need of grace. And until we approach God that way, we'll never connect. In fact, that's why Jesus came, isn't it? Jesus came for sinful people. You know, you ask people, you know, who is Jesus? And, and for a lot of people, Jesus is kind of the role model. Well, you know, he's kind of like, a, you know, sort of an Israeli version of Buddha. You know, he, he sort of taught to love people and be kind. I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a guy I know about, started talking a little about Jesus, and, and he, he, uh, we were writing each other. He wrote back, he said, I'm all set on Jesus. He goes, Jesus taught me th- what I need to know. Jesus taught me to love myself. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's nowhere in the Bible. But, uh, you know... But, but there's the idea. Jesus is kind of a, a good teacher to teach you how to be a good person because you are, really are a good person and you're doing really good, frankly, and he's just there to help you along, kind of coaching a little bit more so that you can be confident in your own righteousness. And we see Jesus that way as he's sort of a guru to give us a little few extra tips, kind of like another Dr. Phil, kind of an Oprah, kind of a Buddha, kind of a person with some spiritual coaching to help us do better. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus is the Savior. He came to die to save sinners. He came to show mercy by dying on a cross to save those who couldn't make themselves right by just trying harder and better. Jesus is the mercy of God incarnate. His blood is the grace and mercy of God poured out for us. So there's a way for even the dirty, rottenest of the scoundrels, the most infidel of the infidels, to be brought back to God, and it's through Jesus. But it takes humility. That's our posture. 
We have to admit that we need Him. We have to admit that we need Christ, that He's, he's our Savior, the one that, that we're looking for. How do you see Jesus? Do you see Him as just a heavenly guru like God, sitting next to God, the heavenly grandfather? Or do you see that God is the King, the ruler of all, who, to whom we owe everything? Do you see that Jesus Christ is God's most gracious gift to needy, broken sinners like me who can't cut it no matter how hard we tried? And have you humbled yourself before God? Have you opened your heart to Him and received His gift? I pray that you would. Let's pray together. Lord, we're in awe of you. On the one hand, there is no one greater and more awesome than you. And yet on the other hand, there is no one who is closer and kinder. Lord, you're the God who who comes right up close to the people who are the most repulsive. We've never heard of a king who gets down in the gutter to save sinners. There's no such thing. Oh, God, we're in awe of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. I pray for your mercy. God, I pray for all of us here. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are in crisis. Anyone here whose life is coming unglued, Lord, who does face enemies, who does face deprivation and struggle, anyone whose body is not working, Lord, I just pray for mercy. And God, we pray that as they wait upon your mercy, that their heart would be filled up with a desire to glorify you no matter what. Lord, we know that some of your answers to our pleas for mercy will not be answered until the next life. And so help us, Lord, to be patient and wait upon you and give you the glory. God, I pray for mercy for uh, those of us here who are struggling to follow you and obey you, Lord. And we, we struggle, we fall. Lord, pray for your mercy to give us grace to keep honoring you. Thank you that even as Christians, your forgiveness is new every morning. And that we can come every day and say, have mercy, God, have mercy. And Lord, I pray finally for those here who don't know you. I pray, Lord, for those who've just simply never heard the truth. They thought their whole lives and they've been told wrongly that that it's about trying your best and doing your best. And Lord, I, I pray that they would come to see that what they really need is a Savior, not more coaching. God, I pray that their hearts would be open to see the beauty of Jesus who would die for people like us and rise again. And so, Lord, bless us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are faithful to have mercy upon those who humble themselves before you. Thank you that you're the faithful king. We pray this in Jesus' name.